Our scripture lesson is taken from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, the first chapter, beginning at verse 35 and reading through verse 42. John chapter 1, page 1,221 in the Pew Bible, 1,221, John 1, beginning at verse 35. John 1.35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, And said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, I I want to begin uh, this morning by saying a a word directed particularly to some of our young people who in August, uh, later in August and September, will be going off to university or to community college or some uh, other uh, form of education after high school. It often happens that when young people from the church graduate high school and then continue their education at a university or a community school or even sadly sometimes at a Christian college, they meet professors who try to undermine their faith. And as I was studying this passage today, there were some aspects, uh, not today, but uh, this past week, as I was studying this passage this past week, there were certain aspects of it that just jumped out at me and and, uh, impressed upon me that this is an eyewitness account. You know, some of the professors at uh, the secular schools will say, oh, that the New Testament that was was written a hundred years after the fact, it was uh, simply simply a myth and uh, it's fiction, it's it's not uh, real history, these aren't events that that really happened. But you know, if if you look at uh, at verse uh, 38, It says, uh, then Jesus turned and seeing them said, you know, what do you want? Uh, How does the author know that Jesus turned and and then addressed them? Here you you, you picture two men who were with John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, there's there's Jesus, there's the Lamb of God. And they, they leave John and they begin to follow Jesus. Jesus sends somebody behind him and he turns around it's, it's an eyewitness account. 
The person who was writing this saw this happen. It was probably one of those two disciples who, who saw, who began to follow Jesus and saw Jesus turn. Or the, you, you go to the next uh, verse, verse 39. It was about the tenth hour. You know, Jews started counting the day at six in the morning, so uh, noon is the sixth hour, and the tenth hour would be four in the afternoon. At four in the afternoon is when they begin to, to meet Jesus and, and spend the rest of the day with him. Uh, these kind of little details tell you this, this isn't the way you write myths. This isn't once upon a time, a long time ago, in a, in a universe far, far away. Uh, you know, this isn't uh, even Middle Earth. This is, this is uh, Herod uh, is uh, the king and Pontius Pilate is the, the governor. The, Luke, John doesn't give us that information, but Luke ties this to real history. And it's written as real history. It's written as eyewitness accounts. Uh, and uh, if you want to learn more about the historicity of this, I would recommend you listen to today's edition, a podcast of the White Horse Inn, uh, where a, uh, an Australian professor, I uh, can't think of his name now, John Dixon maybe, uh, is interviewed, and uh, he, he goes into this in great detail. It kind of dovetailed what I was thinking all week about the historicity of this account. So uh, be prepared for professors who will want to, uh, when they find out you're a Christian, undermine your faith by saying this is all myth and so forth. No, that's not how it's written. It's written as real history by uh, eyewitnesses. Now, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's get into the matter of our text. This is a passage that ought to be of interest to every true follower of Jesus Christ. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, here we read of the first of our kind, the first followers of Jesus Christ, the first who began to follow and become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see two men at first and then three who, who become disciples. Uh, the church is commanded in the Great Commission to go make disciples. And here we see disciples in the making, and there are lots of things that we need to learn about making disciples and becoming disciples and what it means to be disciples. And so I want to look with you at this passage and note, first of all, who are these men? Uh, Secondly, uh, why did they begin to follow Jesus? Uh, Thirdly, how were they received by Jesus? And thirdly, uh, fourthly, what, uh, what happened then? What happened next after they were received by Jesus? Well, first of all, who are they? Well, the first two are described as two of John's disciples. And the first one is named Andrew. And he's introduced as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, we haven't even met Simon Peter yet, Simon, son of Jonah, who is renamed Peter. But... What that tells you is that the author who's writing this knows that his audience knows Simon Peter. They know Simon Peter well. And so Andrew is identified as being Simon Peter's brother. Andrew is not so well known. In fact, in the other three Gospels, he's, he's just mentioned. His name is mentioned and he's uh, described as one who left everything to follow Jesus when Jesus showed up at the fishing uh, site and said, come follow me, Andrew, uh, along with uh, Simon, his brother, and, and James and John and so forth, they left everything and followed Jesus. But other than that, we don't know anything about Andrew from the other three Gospels. 
and in this gospel, we don't learn a lot. We see him here. We see him bringing his brother to Jesus. In chapter 6, we see him bringing a, a young boy to Jesus who has uh, five loaves and two fishes. And in the 12th chapter, we see Andrew and Philip bringing some Greeks to Jesus. So he's, he's the one who brings people to Jesus. That's about all we, we know about him. But uh, he's the first. The second one here is not named. There's another person with Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, but it's not Simon Peter, not yet anyway. Uh, it's this other person who is not named. And of course, most scholars are of the opinion, and I would agree that this is the author of the gospel. It is John the Evangelist, John the Disciple, John the Apostle, who is the other person with Andrew who are described as uh, disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, it's uh, interesting that, that John the Apostle is never mentioned by name in John's Gospel. Not even his brother James is mentioned. It's sort of John's way of saying, this is the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel of the disciples. It's not the gospel of me. It's not about me. It's not even about my family, about my brother. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want you looking at me. I don't want you looking at my family. I want you to look at Jesus. He never mentions himself, but he's, he's there as an eyewitness, and he's uh, here in our text today. Now, from the other gospels, we know that these are fishermen which means they are laborers, people who go to work every day. We know that some of them have wives and presumably have children. They are ordinary folk. You know, the word folk uh, comes from the, the German Volk, uh, Volkswagen, the people's wagon. It means the people, the, the common people, the, the ordinary people, the people like like us who, who live in flyover country, who are disdained by the hoi polloi, the, the uppity people, the, the wealthy, the rich, the powerful, the people who live in the, on the east coast in, in Washington, D.C., or on the left coast, who, who disdain the, the middle part of the country where ordinary folk live. Well, Andrew and John are ordinary folk. They are the common people. They are like the people in Corinth to whom Paul wrote, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And of course, Paul explains there that that's because salvation is not by worldly wisdom. It's not purchased with worldly wealth. It doesn't come by armies and and political shenanigans and power, it comes by the cross of Jesus Christ. It comes by a man who was rich, but who became poor and took the form of a servant and suffered a shameful, ignoble death. It comes by the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's why the first disciples are just ordinary human beings. People who are laborers, who go to work every day, who deal with the fam family problems and, and community problems and all sorts of uh, other issues like you and I have to deal with. 
That's who these people are, these disciples of John the Baptist. Now, because they are described as John the disciples of John the Baptist, we can assume that they have humbled themselves and that they have submitted to John's baptism. There were others who went out to hear John that weren't his disciples, people who went to uh, question them, uh, leaders from the church in, uh, uh, the, in Jerusalem who wanted to find some excuse to discount and discredit John the Baptist. But these are disciples. These are people who have heeded his message and submitted to his baptism. They are godly, uh, pious men who have uh, humbled themselves by recognizing that they need to be cleansed of their sins. Now, why do they follow Jesus? Well, let's be clear why they didn't follow Jesus. They, they didn't follow Jesus because of the miracles that Jesus performed. He hadn't performed any yet. And they, they didn't follow Jesus because they were hypnotized by mass psychology, because there were huge crowds following Jesus, because at this point... There were no crowds following Jesus. There were some crowds coming out to John the Baptist. But as far as we can tell, there are only two people following Jesus right now. They're all alone. They're sticking their necks out here, taking a chance by themselves, unconfirmed by the behavior of, of anybody around them. They're not succumbing to any psychological pressure from the mob, from the crowd. They aren't seeing miracles. They're... They're not uh, following the crowds. So why? Well, it's obvious. They, they, they've been listening to John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been talking about one who comes after him, who was before him, one who is greater than John, whose sandals he is not uh, worthy to unloose, one uh, who uh, Isaiah prophesied who would come in the name of the Lord. He's come to prepare the way for that coming one. And they've been listening to John say uh, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They're disciples of John. They're, they're listening to John's teaching. They're listening to John's sermons. They've been listening to sermons. And in the sermon, the last sermon that they heard, John the Baptist says, there he is. <laughs> There's the Lamb of God I've been talking about, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the, the one who's greater than me. You've heard me talk about him, and there he is. They've been listening to sermons, and they believe John. They've been listening to God's servant speak God's word, and they've come to believe and trust what John's saying, trust his message. So when John points to them, they, they believe that Jesus is the one John says he is. In other words, they, they come to faith and to, to following Jesus in a very ordinary manner. The same manner that we are called to come to faith in Jesus. By listening to a sermon. A sermon may not seem like a great thing, but then no one thought that trumpet blasts and shouting could bring down the walls of Jericho. But trumpet blasts and shouting did bring down the walls of Jericho because God sent His Spirit to use those means to bring down the walls of Jericho. And nobody thought that, that smashing pitchers and, and torches and shouts could rout the Midianite herd, hordes. But indeed, when Gideon told his followers to smash 
the, the clay jars and wave the torches and shout. The Midianites ran uh, for their lives and, and started killing each other. And uh, they, they won the battle by these, this foolish means that God has ordained for the defeat of his enemy and the, the salvation of his people. Paul writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For as Paul says to the Romans, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The same method for making disciples is still God's will today. The preaching of the word in which Words are used to paint a portrait of Christ so that you can see Christ and in seeing Christ, see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and seeing the glory of God be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We thought last week about Moses being transformed, but think also about Isaiah. Isaiah in his early vision sees the glory of God and he's, he's knocked down as if uh, made dead. <laughs> Woe is me, I am undone. But then he's lifted up and prepared for service. Uh, uh, Seeing the glory of God transforms him, knocks him down, builds him up, and sends him forth a new man to, to, to serve his God. And so the preaching of the gospel shows us Jesus Christ and shows us the glory of God. And that is the means that God uses to make disciples. Why did they follow Jesus? Because they believed what they heard by grace Faith was created in their hearts through the preaching of the gospel. Now, how were they received? Well, there are a number of things to take note of here. Three things to take note of with regard to the way that they were received. First of all, they were received with a a rather unusual, perhaps strange, uh, even surprising question. Jesus basically says, you know, what do you want? He turns around, he sees two people following him, he says, what do you want? Now, Jesus is at the start of his earthly ministry. He's here to build his church. He's here to gather his sheep, to to call out his sheep and to bring them in and to, to gain followers. He wants everybody to believe in him. And he looks at these two, the first two to follow him, and what do you want? It's a bit off-putting. It's, it's anything but, but seeker-friendly. Seeker-friendly means remove every obstacle that might hinder a person from coming to Jesus. Be as winsome as you possibly can. And Jesus adopts a question that is sort of seeker-insensitive. In, in effect, he's, he's somewhat testing them to see if they're going to persevere. You know, it's a surprising question because it's it's a bit off-putting. It's it's a surprising question because uh, it, Jesus already knows, doesn't he? He knows why they're following him. In the next chapter, in chapter two of John's Gospel, in verse thirty-four, we read, "But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people." In other words, at this point, there are crowds following him, and. He doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows that they're following him for the wrong reason, for superficial reasons. He knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And Jesus knows what these people are thinking. He, he doesn't need to, to, to 
ask, why are you following me? He knows why they're following him. So it's a surprising question in that regard. And it's also a surprising question because even if Jesus couldn't read their hearts, he knows what's going on. He's there with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is close enough to point and say, there he is. Therefore, Jesus is close enough to hear John say that. And he knows what John is there for anyway. He's already received baptism from John. And uh, so, uh, you know... It's obvious why they're following. John the Baptist has been telling his disciples about Jesus. John the Baptist points out Jesus. John the Baptist's disciples begin to follow in Jesus. Come on, Jesus, figure it out. Well, obviously, there's more to this question than Jesus is ignorant and, and needs to find out, or Jesus is uh, suspicious of why they might be following. That's, that's not it at all. It, it serves a different purpose. It's a It's somewhat of a a probing question. He really wants them to begin to consider, what do you want? In fact, I would say that this is recorded in Scripture because God wants you today here at Covenant Reformed Church to ask yourself, why are you here? What do you want? Why are you listening on the radio or watching on Facebook? What do you want Why are you here? What are you seeking? Now, don't be too upset with yourself if you can't articulate a really great answer at this point. Because the disciples at this point could not articulate a very good answer and Jesus was not upset with them. He didn't turn them away. The best they could come up with was, well, we want to see where you're staying. Presumably they, they wanted to, to be able to, to go home and then come back and find Jesus. Uh, tell us where you're staying so that when we go home tonight and uh, whatever we do tonight, we can find you tomorrow and, and, and learn more from you. Uh, that's the best they could come up with. But, uh, you know, I think if, if Jesus had pressed them for a better answer or if we could meet them and ask them, now, why were you following Jesus? What was it that you wanted? They would, they would probably just say, well, we, we were just interested. We just felt drawn to him. We had heard what, what John the Baptist said about him and that intrigued us and fascinated us. And when we saw him, we just felt we had to do it. We had to follow him. We, we felt drawn to him. And that's, that's not a bad answer because Jesus would later say in the, uh, the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Perhaps the answer to why you're here today is because the Father is drawing you. The Father is drawing you to Jesus. You're, you're really not here under your, your own volition, although that's certainly involved, but He put that desire, that volition into your heart to, to come and to learn about Jesus. And if that's the case, you should also take note of the, the second thing that Jesus does here to, to receive these people. He not only has this, this probing question, but he then responds with an invitation, which is more than just an invitation. It's, it's a summon. Come. Come and see. You know, a lot of people began to follow Jesus out of curiosity. 
They were hanging around Jesus to see if they would see a miracle. They were hanging around Jesus in order to see if Jesus would do something to to benefit them. But they were really keeping Jesus a bit at, at arm's length. And Jesus says to them, come, come and see. He summons us. He's summoning you today. You know, the the gospel is a command. The command to repent and believe. Or the Old Testament gospel. I will be your God. You will be my people. Walk. Walk before me. Go where I tell you to go. Do what I tell you to do. It's a summons to be with God to follow Him, to be with Him, to come close to Him. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, the kingdom is coming, and the King is here summoning you to His kingdom. And there is a commandment to prepare yourself for that. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus receives his followers with a command. A command to come to him. To come see him. To come be with him. For our covenant God is a God who is with us and calls us to himself. But not only does Jesus receive these people with a with a probing question, not only does he receive them with a summons to come and be with him, He receives them with instruction. Now, we're not told about that instruction. We infer that because they spent time together. We are told they spent time together. And we're told that after they spent that time time together, then Andrew and the unnamed apostle, namely uh, the unnamed disciple at this point, uh, they go and find Andrew's brother and say, We have found the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No. That's not what they say. They say, we have found the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. We found the One who who the Scriptures speak about. We found the the prophet greater than Moses. We found the, 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 the king from the line of David who is the greater son of David. We found uh, the priest who is greater than the high priest Aaron. We found the one of prophecy who is coming to sprinkle many nations. The one who has come to wash us clean and give us a new heart and a new spirit within us. The one who has come to, to rule upon the kingdom of God forever. We found the Messiah. Where did they learn about that? Well, presumably they spent some time with Jesus and he began to open the scriptures and show how the scriptures deal with himself. He, he would do that throughout his ministry and even after his resurrection he would continue to do that. But he begins to do it here so that they can go to, to Simon, son of Jonah, and say, we have found the Messiah. Jesus receives his followers with a summons, And he receives them with instruction. And therefore, if you, if you would be a follower of Jesus, you need to answer the summons. Say, here I am, teach me. The Great Commission says, go make disciples and teach them everything that I have commanded. A disciple is by definition a learner of the teaching of Jesus. Remember the story of Mary and Martha, how 
Mary chose to sit at the Master's feet and learn while Martha was worried about serving food. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better thing. We're all summoned to sit at the feet of Jesus and to make use of every opportunity that we are able to make use of. When the the elders summon us to worship, to come and hear the Word of God, when there is opportunity each day to to read the Bible at home and to read it as a family, to have family worship and individual uh, devotions and, and, and group Bible study. Not everyone is able, physically able, uh, to, to come to every worship service. The, the infirmities of age and, and other uh, sicknesses sometimes interfere with that. But as God gives you ability and as God gives you opportunity, if you are to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must sit at Jesus' feet and learn from Him. Learn His Word. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's how Jesus receives disciples. He asks you to look within and say, you know, what are you looking for? And then, and then come. Come and learn from me. Find what I have to, to offer for you and what I have done for you already. Well, what happens next? We've seen who they are. We've seen why they follow Jesus. We've seen how Jesus received them. What happened next? Well, what happens next is two things. They become evangelists and Jesus begins to change them. After spending the afternoon and evening with Jesus, they, they return with Andrew's brother. Andrew's brother, Simon. Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of John. Uh, Simon, we would say Simon Johnson, who uh, uh, Jesus names him uh, Peter, which means rock, which means his modern name is Rock Johnson. And now probably we, you won't remember anything from today's sermon except uh, Jesus is uh, Peter's modern name. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said it. But anyway, Jesus uh, changes his name as a sign of his calling. But, but first of all, they, they become evangelists and they become eager evangelists. They go right away and, and share their testimony. No, that's not what they do. They don't say, this is what Jesus means to me, and this is what Jesus uh, did for me. Uh, no, they say, we have found the Messiah, they, they, which is a, a scriptural term. Uh, it has to be unpacked from Scripture. They, they share scriptural truth with them, and then they, they bring him to Jesus. They bring him uh, to Jesus. We, uh, we read the words, and he brought him to Jesus. Six little words, and he brought him to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, English preacher of the 19th century, preached a, a whole sermon just on those six words, and he brought him to Jesus. That's, that's how, you, how disciples make other disciples. They bring him to Jesus. If you want to be involved in making new disciples, You need to say, we have found the Messiah, and then you need to bring those people to Jesus. And how do you bring people to Jesus today when Jesus is in heaven? Well, Jesus is is presented to us today through this book, through the written word. But not only the written word, also the preached word. The preached word and the written word show us Jesus, and that's where we meet him. And so in order to bring people to Jesus, you have to bring them to the Word, especially to the preached Word. It means you have to invite them to church. It's that simple. Where the Gospel is proclaimed. 
so that they can see Jesus and see the glory of God and be transformed by it. They become evangelists. And we are also called to be the light of the world, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, calling people out of the darkness and into the light, bringing them to see Jesus. That's what the church is here for. It doesn't mean everybody becomes a a front-line evangelist. No, everybody has different gifts. But we all participate in the mission of the church some way. Find your gift. Find your way of participating in the the mission of the church, what spiritual gifts God has given you, and, and get involved in the mission of the church, which is making disciples, which is bringing people to Jesus, so that they too might sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. But then note that when we are brought to Jesus, he gives us a new name. And he's given you a new name as well. He's given you the name Christian. When he gives a new name, he is giving you the name that he's going to make you into. Peter was not yet a rock when he received the name rock. But God would make him a rock. Slowly, over time, through ups and downs, Peter would become a rock. He would become a very stable force, a a pillar of the church, we would say, a rock of the church, one uh, that uh, people could count on and, and whose ministry would contribute greatly to the life of the church. God would make him a rock. Jesus would make him a rock. And Jesus is going to make you a Christian. By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive that name now. We are children of God now, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. But he's in the process of making us what we shall be. Christian means we share in Christ's anointing, his anointing to be a prophet. We too are called to speak about Jesus Christ. Jesus was anointed to be a priest. We too are called to intercede on behalf of others, to pray for others, and and to uh, be a means of sanctifying others those around us who are not yet Christians. And we're called to to rule with Christ. Christ was anointed to be a king, and we're anointed to share in his rule, that is, to, to crush Satan under our feet, to put sin to death, and experience the victory of God day to day as we say no to sin and yes to Christ. He's making you into a Christian. He's given you that new name. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means being transformed being made into the image of Jesus Christ in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness, becoming like Christ who is the image of God. That's what it means to be a disciple. Ordinary folk, ordinary folk summoned to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him and to be transformed by him. What a wonderful God we have who, while we were yet sinners, sent his son Jesus to do these things for us. Praise the Lord. Amen.